speaking of that, Jim, and going to like these events and stuff like that, my wife, before we went to this party, she was like, okay, I need to have a talk with you. I'm like, okay, all great. And she goes, please don't be awkward tonight. <laughs> Did she really say that? <laughs> I Honest to God. <laughs> you think I'm direct and to the point? My wife is even way more direct and to the point. <laughs> and then she also goes, and don't follow me around all night. <laughs> I love your wife a little bit more after hearing that. Honest to God. Hey guys, you know I've been trying to locate a machine monitoring system that is easy to install with minimal onboarding, right? I have to tell you, Amper Technologies reached out to me. Akshat, their founder, has been on the show before. He sent me two units to install on my CNCs under their 30-day pilot program. It's been nothing but easy peasy. Ryan snapped them on. We waited a few days to validate and collect the data, and away we go. Check them out at amper.xyz and look under products for their pilot program. Bam. Welcome to Making Chips. We believe that manufacturing is challenging, but if you are connected to a community of leaders, you can elevate your skills, solve your problems, and grow your business. I'm your host, Jim Carr, and I'm in the studio with my two affable co-hosts, Jason Zanger and Nick Golner. Hey, guys. How affable. you doing, bud? What is that? Laughable? No, it's a very personable type person that is easy to get along with. And actually, now that's not the definition of Jason that I really wanted to put. Yeah. You're affable, Jason. Is Jason's it? laughable. So, yeah, he is laughable. He thinks he's the funny one. I do make people laugh. Yeah. No, well, I wouldn't go I've that far. I've been having you laughing up until we hit oh, the record button. So, on the floor. You know, yeah. On the floor, know, for sure. Here's the official definition. Friendly, good-natured, or easy to talk to. There you go. That's a good definition. See? I didn't even have a college education. Look what I can do. I think I told this story once before on making chips, but yes. one of my wife's best friends had an interesting conversation with my wife after we had a party at her house. And she went to my wife afterwards and she was like, Jason really doesn't like to do small talk, does he? And so like, I don't know, because I just don't like to do small talk. I don't like to talk about sports. And so that sometimes that makes me less of an easy person to talk to, I guess you would say. But I only like to talk about serious things and things that kind of like Well, you do. Are you talk about about the things that are interesting to you. Well, no, but That's like I'm not thing. a small talk guy. Like I'm not going to like get into a conversation and be like, "Hey, you know, like let's talk about how the Bears you did know last night." You know what I mean? Honestly, now he's like, "Let's talk about the meaning of life." Thinking back to the early years when we used to do a lot of those networking events, yeah. I do remember you being yeah. a little in and the it, corner to yourself. That's kind of weird now that I think about this it. This is also kind of funny because we had this party that we host. No, no, we had a party that we we're going to. Do you to. have parties? Yeah, we host okay. parties. We, I just don't invite you. Oh, thanks. Well, you know why I don't come? Because you buy the cheap wine. No, that is not true at okay. all, actually. Okay, no, go ahead. That's not true. <laughs> go ahead. I do like nice wine like you do. And both my wife and I, we don't drink a lot. So when we do drink, oh, I'm we sorry. drink I like stuff. the nicest wine out of all of you. Okay. <laughs> I have leather-bound books. So anyway, so speaking of that, Jim, and going to like these events and stuff like that, my wife, before we went to this party, she was like, okay, I need to have a talk with you. I'm like, okay, all great. And she goes... Please don't be awkward tonight. <laughs> Did she really say that? <laughs> I love Honest it. to God. You think I'm direct and to the point? My wife is even way more direct and to the point. Well, here's what I just said. And then you. she also goes, and don't follow me around all night. <laughs> I love your wife a little bit more after hearing that. Honest to God. She's like, you need to learn how to have conversations with people that you don't know and not about like theology or manufacturing or just talk about something else that they're interested in. <laughs> Jason, there's a TED talk. I just sent it to you. How okay. to skip the small talk and connect with anyone. 
and it's the whole, her oh. whole thing is like big talk. Like let's have big talk. Big, right, right. <laughs> big life defining. What's the meaning of all this talk with Jason? Exactly. So now that we've talked, we've really dissected being affable. Yes. What do you want to talk about? Well, today, I want to talk first and foremost. Eh, stop. We're going to talk about this. So you guys, we all know we're in the business every day. We say it every week in our intro that manufacturing is challenging, but if you are connected to a community of leaders, you can elevate your skills, solve your problems and grow your business. So true, right? Absolutely. Do we still stick to that mantra? Absolutely. Okay. And it's all about being resilient in your business, honest, being able to troubleshoot, manage the day-to-day issues that we get hit with every day. Every day we get hit with something new in our face. Oh my God, the wall just fell down. What's the next step? So it's all about managing those troubles that we get hit with every day. Well, and it comes to like the little troubles to the big troubles. I mean, it could be little troubles like, you know. Constantly reprioritizing all day long. Constantly. Yeah, it could be little troubles that you'd think are big right now, like somebody resigned, or it could be big trouble like that company Chemtool, which they're a competitor of mine in the coolant area, their whole factory just burnt down. Yeah. That's a big trouble. That's a big problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was a big like doomsday cloud over Rockford where I live for a while. Yes. Yeah. And it was nasty stuff. Like they were telling people to evacuate. Well, just imagine that if you're only manufacturing plant burned to the ground. Yeah, would not I mean, be good. That would not be good. Lithium and all sorts of ugly chemicals in the air. No yeah. bueno. So yeah. today, I'm truly excited to introduce and have on the show with us and to the Metalworking Nation. I want to introduce this gentleman to the Metalworking Nation. He's a new friend of mine who I just met last week. He was introduced to me through Akshat Tarani at Amper and Technologies. We love Amper. Yeah. Yep. And Akshat said, you've got to meet this guy. He's great. I've actually known him for years. We're going to get into it. And he has a story that he shared with me last week that I truly believe is going to resonate with some of us, fascinate most of us, and impress all of us. Okay. I have an important question, though. Is this story going to make me cry? I don't think it's going to make you cry, but I think- Will I get close to crying? You will. You will, definitely. Wait, let me get the tissues out first before we get there. I will give you $100 if you make Jason cry. Well, guess what? It's our guest's- opportunity to make you cry. Okay. So a lot of pressure on him. Can we do manufacturing news before we introduce him? Well, I, first of all, I want to find out what's going on at Nick's business. Sure. Yeah, things are good. Actually, it's challenging right now because we believe that manufacturing is challenging. See? Especially the things that you can't control. Like we're bursting at the seams with orders right now. The economy's doing really good, but we make chip conveyors, right? And mm-hmm. chip conveyors have a motor on them. And you can't get motors. It's impossible to get a freaking motor. Yeah, I know. We're like scouring the world to try to find motors. We have all these completed chip conveyors that just need a motor to operate the belt. Right. And so anyway, we're going to end up making like a funny public service announcement. Customers who are waiting for their chip conveyor. That's Oh, just to tell them that the issues you're having. You know, I think when you're transparent and you say, hey, yep. We're doing everything we can. By the way, if you have a motor, you send it to us. We'll ship it to you today. <laughs> but but it's hard. I, it's like COVID did a lot, right? And we're still dealing with it. Supply chain is... It's a mess. A mess. So. It's totally a mess. You're going to make me look bad. Yes. Why Be- is that? Well, because um, one of my clients looked up Hennig chip conveyors, and there was a video of me talking about Hennig chip conveyors, and now he thinks that I represent the company. And well, you're going to make me look bad when you don't ship that chip conveyor to him. We're doing everything we can. And okay. you know what? Can you prioritize him for me? Yes. Okay. He'll get you. our first motor, <laughs> whoever this guy is. Everyone's dealing with it. It's not like... Everyone's dealing no, with it. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a big problem. It's a big problem. Yeah. My dad always tells the same story all the time. And he's like, there's two campers in the woods. 
and then there's a bear and the bears get like chasing after him and, and the one guy stops and puts his shoes on and ties his shoes and the other guy's like hey what are you doing he's like i don't have to outrun the bear i just have to outrun you <laughs> and so that's, that's great. Like, so you that's really good for your competitors. You yeah. just got to be faster than the next guy. Yeah. yeah, there you go. So before we get on to manufacturing news, I have a fun fact, and I know Jason, you love fun facts. You introduced that to me. Yep. And since we're talking about the family dynamics, multi-generational businesses, I researched some fun facts or facts about family businesses because all of us are included in that. So family businesses account for 64% of the U.S. gross domestic product, generate 62% of the country's employment, and account for 78% of all new job creation. Did you know that? Studies have shown that about 35% of the Fortune 500 companies are family controlled. The greatest part of America's wealth lies with family-owned businesses, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Family firms compromise 90% of all business enterprises in North America. Next bullet, more than 30% of all family-owned businesses make the transition to the second generation, but only 12% will still be viable into the third generation. With only 3% of all family businesses operating at the fourth generation level and beyond. 3%. Yuck. So if you can get to 4 You've really made some... Yeah, don't screw up your kids. Yes. Well, and I think a lot of that has to do with a lot of family businesses are like lifestyle businesses as opposed mm-hmm. to actual like businesses that are being running like a business. And But go on. I only grabbed the bullets that I thought were applicable to what we we're going to be talking about. But recent research indicates, however, that the first transition has changed to 19% in the last five years. This is thought to be due to millennials not wanting to take over the traditional family business, but perhaps selling and using the proceeds to start a different but still family-controlled enterprise. I thought that was really interesting. Well, I can explain that in terms of manufacturing. There's probably a lot of millennials out there that don't know the great value that manufacturing brings to the economy and the great satisfaction that they can have in in manufacturing. And they're like, oh, I don't want to like be involved in my dad's dirty manufacturing business. So just sell it and I'll start some software company because that's really what I want to do is sit behind a computer and code. Right, exactly. Honestly, I would not have picked manufacturing as my career choice. I wouldn't have either if I hadn't been involved in the family business. I knew if I pushed and made an impact in some capacity that I could make it my own in some particular way. Well, that's exactly what I was thinking too. Yeah. Was like, I was like, I knew I my dad did well for himself and I was like, I wanted to be in business and I want to be able to control my own destiny. Yes. And so why not take over what had already been started? It's going to be a little easier, right? Yeah. It's going to be a little easier. But I think a lot of this is going to make it easy. Like for me, I'm on the acquisition hunt. So I want to acquire other cutting tool distributors. To Jason build, is hunting yes. your company. To, no, yeah. to build into my portfolio. No, I had this. We don't need to hear all this, but that's okay. What do you mean? Jim doesn't care. He's about going you. in a rabbit hole. He doesn't care about anybody else but himself. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so I had this conversation with CEO of like a very large industrial distributor and he's acquiring larger company. I'm like, I'm going to take care of the micro distributors and look at acquiring them because there's a lot of those companies out there that their kids don't want to get involved in True. and they need a transition plan for their team. And I can be a great source to acquire those Jason companies. Jason is hunting your companies. Yes. Not hunting mine. Real quick, without rabbit trailing. I'm going to go Jason, then I'm going to go Jim. What did you want to be when you were a kid? You didn't want to be in manufacturing. What did you want to be? Not kid, young man, whatever. Do you remember? I would say that the only 
real vivid thought that I had because it really wasn't something that was important to me when I was real young. Like I wasn't like my son who was like, I want to be a fireman. I want to be, he now he wants to be like a coder. He wants to be two things. He wants to be a YouTuber that talks about gaming and he wants to oh, code video games. So, and then he, before that it was a fireman. I think in between there was a ninja. So, and we kind of tried to explain him. We're like, ninja is only really a career in Japan. So you, it's not really like <laughs> something United States. <laughs> but you don't remember what you wanted to be? So I, my earliest recollection is I wanted to be a tennis instructor. There you go. Jim, do you remember? Well, I'm kind of vague too. I really don't, didn't really have a direction, but I think what I, my passion for a career in a midlife age, 20s, 30s, I love marketing, right? Mm -hmm. But I followed pop music as the cultural thing. And I've seen a lot of semi-talented people become major pop stars because of marketing. And I always thought it'd be so cool to be able to be the person behind that person, tracking, planning, developing, figuring out. Building a brand. Building the brand, building the PR. I love that. I just love that so much. How about you? So for me, I was all about soccer. I spent all my time. So I wanted to be a professional athlete. And then not me. I was like really into art, fine art. Mm-hmm. And I always thought it'd be cool to like sell paintings for a living until I sold my first painting and realized, man, if I did this all day, every day, that would really suck. Yeah. It's too <laughs> bad you're not as good a painter as Hunter Biden. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, here's kind of what I gathered from that without rabbit trailing too much. Your son wants to be a coder and he likes YouTube and video games, right? Because right. he's exposed to that. He spends a lot of time around that. So he, he kind of wants to do that. Jim probably like listened to a lot of music. I did. He was really into music. Right? I did. So you kind of wanted to do that. I played a lot of soccer and did art, and that. So I kind of wanted to do that. Right. When you expose people to manufacturing and they see like it's not what they think, or what you know the it's not what like the world says it is, then it's like oh maybe more people actually want to go into this. And industry. that's one of the exact reason why I'm going to bring my son to IMTS when it comes to 2022 and I want to show them the robotics. I'm going to show them the machines making parts and expose them to really what manufacturing is all about. And then about. you could show, Hey, see these guys that work for making chips. They're putting YouTube videos on yeah. about all this cool stuff. How about it? Anyway. Cool. Can you introduce that guest? Chip? Thanks for letting us share that. No, I yeah, have um, cool. a little bit of manufacturing news that I want to get through quickly. Cause we're talking about family business. We're talking about multi-generational business. So I found an article that just, it goes deep, but we're not going to do. I'm just going to read these headlines. It's seven tips for a better transition for a better succession plan in the family business. And this is for all businesses. And maybe you can find some of these important for manufacturing or not. One, to find the vision for the future of the company and and owner's involvement. Well, I always say everything starts with a vision. Right. I agree. When you and I first met on that radio show, that was like the whole point of it my was talk. a vision. Yep. Identify successors. Who's going to be the successor, right? Three, plan for contingencies. The what if. The what if. Sure. Four. What if Nick paints this great picture and it sells for millions of dollars? dollars. That's (laughs) definitely a contingency. (laughs) He might quit and not take over the manufacturing business. All of a sudden, that art gig starts to make some sense. (laughs) Communicate the plan to others. So let your successors, let the people around you, let your leadership team know what your plan is all about. Five. Obtain an updated business valuation. I think that's very important, and a lot of people don't do that. We should talk about that in a future episode because I've got some experience with like business valuation and everything like that. And I did, but it's been now it's been 15 years ago since I've done it, but I plan on doing it in the future. So maybe it would be a good time to talk about it. Six, formalize the plan by creating or updating supporting documentation. So 
that's an important thing that goes really deep as well. And seven and last is implement life insurance to fund identified liabilities arising from the succession plan. Now, in my succession plan for my dad, we did not do that, but it wasn't applicable to our situation. But that is a big way to help mitigate the financial burden of succession, right? I do know one of my good friends who him and his brother were involved in a manufacturing business amongst other businesses. And the brother who was the leader, he had life insurance on himself and it worked out really well in making that transition to my friend, the brother. Right. How old were they when they took out that life insurance policy? I don't know the details, but perhaps we can have them on sometime to talk about it. At my age, you know how costly oh, life yeah. insurance is? It's crazy. I've so, got like $3 million worth just because right. if something ever happened to me, I want my wife to be able to have the security of being able to take over on her own time and not have to worry yep. about things. Hey, like, I love all this life insurance talk, but like, can we get into an episode about manufacturing? No, I want to talk about insurance. Yeah, yeah. what could be oh, more yeah. boring than that? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's important though, in some ways. We need someone else to spice this up. Can you introduce our guest? I can, I can. So like I said earlier, I said, I new friend. His name is Nick Sinati, and he is the general manager at Belden Universal. And I just met if him. If he doesn't screw up your last name, he's going to screw yeah. up the company. <laughs> Santori is what he called him, which is a Japanese Sinati. whiskey. Sinati. I had, to, I had to write it phonetically down so I can get, you know, that's not my best. Sinati. 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 Good job. I just met him last week. Like I said, Akshat introduced us. He said, you got to meet this guy. He's great. You're going to get along right away. And sure is not. I met Nick last week and immediately became a friend of mine. And I'm hoping we can continue the conversation for many years to come because he's got a lot to share. But what happened? I said, tell me your story, Nick. Like I was interviewing them. It resonated with me so much that I said to Nick at that time, I have to have you on the show and tell this story. So Nick Sinati. The second, Nick. Welcome to Making Chips. Welcome, Nick. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And I'm really looking forward to, to like I said, to sharing the story. So before we begin, just give some idea to the Metalworking Nation and to us about your family business, how it was structured, when it began. and The and origin story. The origin story. Yes. Thank sure. you. Sure. So Belden Universal is a AS9100 manufacturer of precision universal joints and drive shafts. Okay. We make joints and drive shafts for highly demanding applications, aerospace, defense, medical devices, and other types of industrial applications. Now, our heritage, we started in 1970 as Belden Tools. That company was founded by my grandfather and his two brothers in Franklin Park on Belden Avenue. Right in my backyard. (laughs) I know. Oh, yeah, Chicago. And Jason, uh, my dad mentioned that they used to buy tools from Zangers right down the street. Of course. Everybody in the area. Yep. Right in Grand Avenue. Yeah. So it's definitely a small world. So they were machine builders. And in the 90s, my dad was part of the business. He joined the business in the 80s. And in the 90s, he kind of realized that there was an opportunity to sell universal joints and drive shafts um, direct to customers as opposed to just MRO for the machine tools we built. This is kind of where, where family businesses get difficult. He had a different vision of the future than my grandfather and uncle who wanted to maintain the machine building business. Mm-hmm. So he ended up splitting the universal joint business off in 1997. And we've been run as an independent business for 24 years now. What kind of machine tools were you guys making? Primarily drilling machines. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. 
multi-spindle drilling machines and the u-joints were part of this multi-spindle system okay so who would have been a competitor on the multi-spindle drilling machines Ooh, that's a great question that's actually before my time yeah okay so- we're gonna hear it we're gonna hear this i could tell you i don't know how big your machines were yep. but there's a company petting house that makes these big drills that like will drill in structural steel or rail like gun drilling yeah it's called like the avenger drill but gun drilling is very no 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry not yeah. gu- not gun drilling this is like you know like those big i-beams that build big structures with yes. skyscrapers and stuff. Yeah. It'll just drill holes in those. Are you talking about like magnetic drill presses? No, this is like a monster machine tool. Okay. I can't tell you who the competitors were back then, but I can tell you what kind of the overarching competitor that put that business out of business was CNC machine tools. Yeah, the reason I asked <laughs> oh, you really? is because I saw <laughs> that business as something yeah. that has gone away. I was thinking to myself like a yeah. you know like an old school Kalamazoo drill press or something like that or yeah. that yeah. people don't really use anymore. Yeah, you say I make a drilling machine. It could be two totally different things. Yeah. So 97. The family splits. Yep. Okay. But you're not in the family business. No. You're off doing what, Nick? In 97, I was 13. So Okay. Okay. <laughs> so tell us about your career yeah, sure. and tell us how that went. Yeah. So uh, I went to school on the East Coast and ended up in San Francisco doing investment banking for my first job out of undergrad, You know, doing capital raising and M&A for consumer sector companies. Then spent two years after that working at an e-commerce startup. It's another super interesting experience. But after that, I thought- All in San Francisco. All in San Francisco. Okay. And then my fiance at the time, my wife now, we both quit our jobs, moved back to Chicago. We got married and started our MBA program. So we had a very- Kellogg's. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, same as me. An interesting way to start off a marriage for sure. Two years of unemployment. But, uh, (laughs) But it was a blast. It was such a great experience. And so after business school, we ended up moving out to Seattle for my wife's job. Which was, she worked for? So she started at Nordstrom for a year, but then she went to Amazon after about a year. Oh, Nordstrom is, that's what their headquarters is at, of course. And she's still hanging tough with Amazon. Nice. Today. Yeah. So she works for Amazon in Chicago. What does she do for Amazon? She is a product manager on a logistics product now. Okay, cool. So you're in Chicago, you get married. Do you have your daughter there in Chicago? No. So we had our daughter when we moved to Seattle. Okay. So when we had moved to Seattle, we moved there for my wife's job. I didn't have a job. I you know, didn't have a mortgage, didn't have kids. So I decided to start a business and I ended up starting a wine business. Love it. Yeah. You sound like everything Jim likes. Yeah. Nordstrom. I didn't wine, know Nordstrom until San now. Francisco. So what kind of wine was it? Did you have the farm or did you Yeah, so we were what's known as a negotiant. So we were essentially okay. buying wines from other producers and That's lab- very common. Buying, blending, and then labeling under our own brands. And we also did private label for mm-hmm. distributors and restaurant groups. So you'd buy a cask? Is that what they call it? A cask, you know, a tank. A tank. Okay. You know, buy buy the tank essentially. Okay, and then you um, mix it together and you know, make yeah. Yeah, my partner was a winemaker based okay. on the central coast of California. So most of our wines came from there. Okay. And was that successful? No. Okay. <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, no. not every business is, is no. successful. And, you know, I mean... Two years, right? Two years. And, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs and we had, you know, we had glimmers of success. I'm thinking back, you and I exchanged some emails on the legitimacy of an MBA program, didn't we? We did. I never went back to that. And I apologize for that. But a lot of times when you're getting your MBA... Everything is so theoretical. They don't tell you about the real tough things that can happen that they just never talk about in graduate school. And a lot of it is because they don't talk about like the human aspect of what it means to run a business. True. And a lot of times that's what really... That's the tough part. That's the tough part. That's the tough part. And that's what makes or breaks things. So go yeah. ahead. What happened in that wine business? Yeah. So a number of things. So 
our initial insight was that there was a growing market for exporting wines. And we were trying to source great wines in California and sell them abroad. Sounds like a great idea. Yep, sure. And so we made some headway. We actually developed some customers in China, in Shanghai, in Hong Kong. We had a couple of great customers. And then ultimately, we opened up the licensing for selling wines in the U.S. took quite a while. And so once we developed our distribution licenses in the U.S., we also sold our wines um, in California, in Washington, and in Illinois. Hmm. So we had our, our own wine brands. Um, and then we also did these private label projects. Fun. That's Fun. interesting. I've actually pitched to Jim before. I was like, we should come out with like a making chips. Uh, like we wine. need more to do. We need more hey, on our plate. Give me a call. I still know some guys. Making well, chips. Now we wine. know more. Now we know more people. So I'm not a pro shop user. No, you're not. They're a great sponsor of ours. And we hear a lot about pro shop from you, Jim. And one thing that's kind of surprising to me in, in a really good way for them is as I travel, I spend about a third of my life on the road. Yeah. As I travel, this year I've had like three or four different companies yeah. that are all either using ProShop and have amazing things to say about really? it. Really? Or they're like one time I walked in and they were telling me, yeah, that's ProShop on the screen, but we're just like analyzing which ERP we were going to switch to. They're blowing to. up, Nick. I mean, seriously, I know, I mean, just from talking to Paul, he's a busy man and you're just hearing about him everywhere. I was like, look, I don't use ProShop, but everyone I know who does absolutely loves it. So, But in all seriousness, you're going into these shops across America yeah. and you see it on their yeah. screen and you're like, oh my God, yeah. This- I've seen that before. And I'm like, is that ProShop? They're like, yeah. yeah. And one of them was just a, right on the fence about to pull the trigger. You know, maybe Paul should run for president in 2024. He <laughs> would, would have my vote, man. So go to ProShopERP.com for more information. Yep. So the wine business, no good. And then you go to work for... Yeah. So I, I use the wine business as a jumping off point to uh, transition into Starbucks corporate um, in brand management. Right. Right there at Par- Pike Market, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Down in, in Seattle and in, in south of downtown. South of downtown. Okay. In Soto. So it's just south of the stadiums. Okay. And I helped launch their, what was called the Starbucks Evenings Program. So that was kind of the tie-in with wine. Oh, yeah, you're right. You could go into Starbucks in the afternoon and get a bottle of wine. That's right. Yeah, I remember drinking many Ferrari Caranos. That's right. There's a um, Starbucks right down the street from me at Sheffield and Belmont that it's like a bar in the evenings. So, yeah. Yeah, that was a program I worked on. I spent a couple of years on that, then a transition to a strategy team. And yeah, it was a great experience. I learned so much about both people management how a culture is is cultivated. They're all about culture, yeah. And how to run big, complex projects. So I have a question, since you've worked for Starbucks, I've never actually talked to somebody who's worked at Starbucks corporate. I know they talk about a lot of things like, you know, how do we sell wine? How do we do an app really good? How do we create a great culture? Have they ever had discussions on how do we actually produce a better cup of coffee? Because it seems like Starbucks coffee just, it's okay. It's sometimes not even very good. So continuously, I would say. Okay. So that, that conversation <laughs> is always funny, ongoing. But like, you know, yeah, yeah. they kind of have like a bad name in like the coffee connoisseurs realm because like they overburn their coffees and it's just sure. okay. You know? I, I think the major accomplishment of Starbucks on the coffee side is just being able to produce a consistent product everywhere. On and it. that's like one of yep. the keys. That's like what McDonald's always, you know, that's like one of their things. It's like, well, we're not going to produce the best hamburger but it's always going to be the Cons- same. And, yeah. and the attention to quality and quality control from, from bean to cup is truly unrivaled exactly. in the industry. Do you think that really is common amongst very large corporations where it's like, okay, we're not going to be the best. You know what I mean? We're not going to serve our customers the best, probably like Jim and Nick and I do, but we're going to always consistently serve them 
okay. I think that's right. Because I've never worked for a large corporation before. Yeah, this is my only experience with it too. You know what? You said the best, and I think the best is quite subjective. It is very subjective. Of course subjective. it is. But like whenever yeah. we go for like a client engagement, we're always like, how do we wow them? How do mm-hmm. we make sure that they're coming back to us and saying, you're the best cutting tool distributor that we've ever dealt with our entire sure. life. And that's our objective. But like that is hard to do if you're very large. Absolutely. And the challenge of bringing that experience consistently to scale is remarkably difficult. And yeah, yeah Starbucks was almost like steering a battleship. Like you yeah. could- yeah. So you're working for Starbucks, and then what happens, Nick? Yeah. Then life changes dramatically. Then life changed. So we had our first daughter in Seattle. Two months after she was born, my folks came out to visit. They took me and my sister, who lived out in Seattle at the time, they took us out to dinner, and they told us that my dad was sick. Oh. He had a rare form of leukemia, and Mm -hmm. he would have had to take time off of work for treatment. This is obviously going to be pretty, pretty straining. And as part of this, they, they mentioned they were probably going to have to sell the business if, because they didn't really have a whole lot of options, unless one of us who wanted to come back and run it. And this was obviously pretty heavy news. So how did you feel when they first told you that? Shocked. Just shocked. Because and, your uh, dad never can get sick, right? Your dad's resilient, you know, right? It's funny. You know, my mom and dad were just such like healthy, active people. Like their pastime was, you know, my dad was a huge road biker. They both loved rock climbing. They would go on rock climbing expeditions. And this is just surprising. Mm-hmm. I mean, just t- completely shocking. So after processing this news and kind of thinking it over and talk, discussing it with my wife, who's also from Chicago, we decided to move back to Chicago and I decided to take over a Belden. Did you have to put a lot of thought into that? Or was it like, as soon as they said it, you're like, you're kind of like your sense of duty came to the forefront. You're like, I got to do this. That's exactly it. I don't think I, you know, realistically, I don't think it was a a choice. I think it was, uh, my folks gave up so much to give me the upbringing that I got. And they put so much time and effort into this business and to have them sell it would, you know, because we didn't, because we chose to just continue our lives. Like, it would have almost felt selfish, I would assume. Right, right. You know? It was pretty clear cut for us. Yeah. And so we picked up and four months after that conversation, we were back in Chicago and I was running a machine shop. That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> Nick, you have to tell the metalworking nation the best part about right. this. So you get hit with it. You accept this return to Chicago. You're going to run this huge manufacturing company of how many people? 45. At the 45 people. And you know, zero about manufacturing. That's right. So what did you do? But you know about making coffee. I did know about making coffee and I did know about, yes, I I knew about making coffee, but this was a little bit different. It's a little bit different. Uh, Yeah. So I did two things. I bought a big book about manufacturing that from a college level manufacturing class, read it cover to cover. I love it. And I dug into the back episodes of Making Chips. Did you? Oh, nice. Wow. Okay. There we go. Okay. You know, at the time you guys probably had a couple of dozen shows and- A couple dozen? We're at at 275 now. Yeah. Wow. This is back in 2018. And I uh, listened to you guys talk manufacturing while pushing my baby daughter around the neighborhood. Nice. That's awesome. So that's back when I was on the mower listening to you guys. Yeah. Yeah. We were terrible back then, weren't we? You guys were great. You guys were great. And that's when we had the sexy voice at the beginning. Yeah. We're going to talk about that in a future episode. Yeah. Getting dirty on the factory floor. Yes. But go ahead, Nick. I love it. Yeah. So what did you learn? I just, I'm not trying to like, you know, what did you learn from making chips by listening? So that's a good question. So like, okay, so you're listening to the episodes before you even really step into the manufacturing floor. Right. So like, what is it that like, how are you prepared once you hit the factory floor? So I think a big part of both the textbook and just listening to making chips was getting immersed in the language Mm -hmm. and 
this is like learning a foreign language to me. <laughs> I had plenty of varied business experience, but this was new. And so I got to say, you know, when I listened to some early episodes about milling strategies and I was like, <laughs> I don't know what this means, but it seems important. Uh, are, are we making grain? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's funny. I should probably go back and listen to those episodes again because I feel like I might actually know what was going on. Yeah, that's awesome. It was certainly getting thrown into the deep end. Yeah. And, um, you know, well, he, I'm genuinely glad that we could help you out in some capacity sure. and you could learn the language from us. My favorite part about this is like, we always have the origin story. Right? We always, always do. And how many times is it like, I started making parts in my garage, my dad was into manufacturing, and I just learned by making one part out of yeah. time. This guy's like nowhere near that. Totally different background. Totally. And, totally. And so it's like, there's a lot of different ways to get in. Well, the story right. continues and it gets better. So the interesting thing about like, kind of like the original Making Chips episodes is I don't think you can get access to them still on a normal iTunes or Oh, you pie. can't? No, I think there's a maximum of either 100 or 200 episodes. So I think, and I was just thinking about this the other day, we probably need to go back and either yeah. reproduce those episodes or create a new feed of like old Making Chips. Yeah. So anyway, but go ahead, Nick. Yeah. So this is a pretty admittedly rough transition for me. We had uh, just moved into a brand new facility in 2018 doubled the size of our manufacturing floor. And we had also just lost our biggest customer, who oh, was one of the reasons we had actually moved into this big new space. Oh. Did you know this before starting there? I knew it was going to be one of my first challenges mm -hmm. and um, ended up within a month of me joining, it was over. Mm -hmm. So that was the, certainly a blow. What percentage of the total business were, I mean, do you just ballpark? Yeah, it was a new customer and it would have been a quarter of our business. Wow. Yeah, that's wow. big. Meaningful. That's huge. So we had that to deal with right off the bat. So, you know, nerves were a bit frayed. The And your dad was not working at all? My dad was there for about the first month and then okay. he kind of had to step aside. And did, did he have another leadership and team to help to nurture you through the process of getting acclimated or what did that look like? So again, we had a very, uh, quite a tenured team. Mm -hmm. We had a really strong, operating team. We had people to kind of help me get up to speed. But again, it was tough because they were helping me get up to speed, but I was also their boss. I couldn't do most of their jobs. So that mm -hmm. was that was new for me going from Starbucks where I managed one person in this big comfy organization to, okay, you're in charge now. So they made you president of the company right from the very General beginning? General manager. General yes. manager right from the very beginning. Yes. Was there a lot of issues with the whole notion of... Nepotism. Nepotism. Thank you, Nick. Uh, oh, you know, yeah. Right from the very beginning. That's our number one episode. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the downloaded yeah. one? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone watches the nepotism episode. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, it's a big deal. It's a great question. Again, I didn't see a lot of it because of what, what's unique about our business is... <laughs> they don't go up to you and be like, Nick, exactly. I think this is, you know, there's a lot of nepotism here and you should step yeah, down hey, from we, General we Manager. Know, we <laughs> think you suck and, and you don't deserve this job. Sure. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> I can't say they weren't thinking. And we can it, all but... laugh about it because we've all, to a degree, been through that same oh, thing. Sure. Yeah, you know? yeah, we have oh, targets sure. on our backs. Yeah. So at least I do. And I'm sure I stepped on landmines those first couple of months, too. Sure. So you yeah. lost your biggest customer. We, You're in this brand new building in yeah. 2018. Our sales manager of 19 years quit on me three months in. Mm. Oh, my God. It was hard. And we had some frayed nerves. Yeah, I would imagine. was in a kind of a weird spot. I'm nervous just hearing the story. Yeah, and, and we had a lot, you know, we had a lot to fix. And I think what's important here was like kind of just taking stock of the situation and then defining where did we want to go? What kind of company, yeah, what kind of company did we want to be? Mm -hmm. And so for the sales manager, we hired an internal candidate who's turned out phenomenally. Um, she's done a great job getting this, the team back on track and just has really blossomed as a leader. And we kind of worked kind of step-by-step step on the culture. 
you know, we want it to be a respectful, tolerant, open environment where people were excited to come to work every mm-hmm. day. And so about 18 months into my joining the business, we had an incident where with our production manager who had been with us for about 29 years. And there had been some unaddressed things over the decades, but this final moment, this final kind of event, we had to really decide whether we wanted to be the company that we espoused to be, or if we were going to let him off with a warning. And I made the call to part ways with him. And that was, again, particularly painful because it was first quite unexpected. And just having been with us for 29 years, he, he was involved the in every knowledge. part of the yeah. business. Yeah. What was his role? He was the production manager. Production manager. Okay. That's yeah. a big deal. Was it, was it like a cultural values disagreement? I think it was a clash between old school manufacturing okay. and, right. and language and treatment of people okay. that would happen on the shop floor yep. and what I wanted the company to be. Yeah. And um, that's important. I mean, you need to be really clear about those things. And I would say a lot of that stuff even really needs to come out in the values of your company is to how do we treat people? How do we talk to people? How do we talk to clients? And one of the things that we have in our values is do the right thing. And that kind of goes back to talk to somebody the way that you would want to be talked to. And the conflict with him with became clear pretty soon after I had started and after continuous coaching for those whole 18 months, continuous feedback, management class, management course, multiple conversations with HR in the room. He didn't get the hint and he didn't get the guidance. And ultimately he stepped over the line one last time and you had to decide whether that was a real line or not. Yeah. Right. What are you going to tolerate? That's right. Yeah. Wow. So did you have to do it? I mean, you had to sit across the table and let him go. Yep. That's right. How did that go? (laughs) It was a tough conversation, but you got to do it. It's, yeah. part, it's part of this and job. It sucks. I hate that. And, and candidly, like, I think that's probably one of the most emotionally taxing. Mm-hmm. And I actually like to do that for my team members just because I know it's emotionally taxing. And I yeah. you know these are tough conversations. Yes. You know, I had to let go of someone yesterday. And I, you know, as a guy on the shop floor, but like I did it because I know it's just a tough conversation to have. And yes, it is. I don't want to distract my team. Next time I do that, can you come to my shop and do it for me? Because I hate it too. I can't say it gets any easier. Well, yeah. Jason's really good at it. He just gets out a machete and off with the head. Machete man. Yeah, machete man. That's what we call him. Yeah. So you let this guy go after 29 years. And then how are are things starting to change or? Sure. So the big benefit of that, I'd say that the blessing in disguise there was I was forced to get more involved into floor operations. Mm, Great. To spend a lot more time on the floor. Sometimes the best way to learn is to get, have it thrown in your face. Yeah, right. You're telling me. We training, it's, you know, training by fire. You know, you step into it. Yeah. And this is about the time when we installed our Amper system. You know, I know they're friends of the show. Just And that's been incredibly helpful just to get visibility. Yeah. Tell everyone floor. like real quick, what does Amper sure. do for you? Uh, sure. So uh, Akshat will be very happy. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> We're going to do a 30 second pitch right now. Right. <laughs> yes. So the way we use Amper, um, we have it on our 22 CNC machines. And what was remarkable to me when I was in this position, gosh, 18 months ago, we had these half million dollar CNC machines on our floor. And I couldn't tell you if they were running unless I was out there watching a triple light with a stopwatch. Sure. And so now just to have all that data in real time at our fingertips, like I just couldn't live without it at this point. That's awesome. You couldn't live without it. That's great to know. Yeah. And so getting that visibility, getting to work more closely with my engineers on continuous improvement projects, getting more involved in the personnel issues, like getting just walking the floor, getting to know people, getting to learn about their families, getting to know them as people. It was transformative for me and it really put me on a a better path. I mean, that's where the work is done is on the factory floor. And that's, you know, for for you to have to get thrown into that is probably a blessing in disguise. I'm sure at first you wanted to cry and you're like, how am I going to do this? But like, you know, you just 
do it and you get into it and you talk to the people and people by and large want to help too. So like they knew what was going on with this gentleman oh, yeah, and they, they probably wanted a solution to it as well. That's and right. they probably were happy because of what you did. And they were probably happy to help you because you were stepping up and you and earned some respect. You earned some respect by doing that. Sure. Did you feel that? Absolutely. People would come up to me afterwards and say it had been years and they felt disrespected and that they were just happy that, that we're turning over a new leaf. That's great. And it's not like your dad was doing something wrong. It's just, you know, Jim's talked about this. It's like kind of the old school way of doing things. And that was kind of like people expected that kind of behavior on a factory floor. Well, you know what? It was almost taken for granted. Yeah. And now in this new generation, we need to do things differently. That's right. That was kind of one of the excuses I heard was this was fine when your grandfather ran the shop. And what that means is, yeah, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, right. We used to ride horses to work, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no. <laughs> and it's just the folks who work here now that this is just not acceptable behavior. Yeah. This is not where they want to work. Right. And in, in an era like today, when you know, we're all competing for employees, mm-hmm. we're competing. Especially right now when the job market right. is the way it is. Yeah. I find it hard to believe that any shop could survive with that type of culture these yeah. days. Yeah. So where are we at in the timeline now? So yeah, production managers let go. It's kind of your milestone thing that you had to deal with. Yep. Where are we at? And like, yeah. So four months after I, I let our production manager go, COVID hit. Oh God. Oh. It came like a lightning bolt out of the blue and we were down 50% in Q2 oh. year over year. And it was just, you know, things almost ground to a halt. How did you deal with the stress? Did you cry? Did you, you know, like just, you know, read did a you book? Take Xanax? Did Jason you drink, keeps going back to the drink a bottle of wine. <laughs> yeah. Mostly crying. Yeah. Did you drink wine? Did you listen Jason's to making chips? Jason's trying to work himself I mean, up so I, I have to God. give Jim a hundred dollars. I wish I had a good answer to that, but you know, it was hard. I yeah. think those early days of the pandemic were so challenging for everyone. You know, yeah. no one knew what was going on. Everyone was telling us we had to stay separated. We had to stay out of the shop. We had to not see people. I mean, it was tough. And I, you know, I, I think honestly, the only way I made it through was on the strength of our team that was there. Because, yeah. you know, we couldn't be out on the floor every day. We couldn't be talking face to face every day. And we got through just trying to keep a steady hand on the rudder and trying to t- put one foot in front of the other and get to the other side. Because, yeah. you know, I think this is the value of generations of a family business, which is you've seen a lot of recessions. Yeah, I have. This was an unusual one, but this yes. was a recession. Yes. Yeah. And we knew that as tough as it was today, there was going to be another side to it. And so we had to batten down the hatches. We had to let some folks go. We did our best to maintain as much capacity in the shop as we could because we knew one day it was going to be over. Mm -hmm. And the bounce back for us started in Q4 of last year, starting in about early October. And it hasn't slowed down since. It's just been picking up steam. That's the same story. Yeah. 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 Q4 is when it all started to bounce back. And I've been through some unique, Jim, you've been through more recessions than I have, but mm-hmm. I've been through some unique ones. I mean, like 9-11, the recession from that. that. Was bad. The housing crisis, the recession from this, and now the COVID recession. I mean, those are some very unpredictable recessions. Even while we're recording these episodes, like the time we've been with Making Chips, we've been like, hey, things are great, but there's going to be a recession. Then there's a recession. Like, Everything I remember sucks, those episodes. it's going to come back. We've done two episodes. I know I've shared a lot sure. of my recession Yeah, how stuff. to deal with the recession. We did it twice, or we talked about it because I I, know I knew like a year and a half ago, we're going to be going through something pretty soon. I didn't think it was going to oh, be because it was of COVID. But... Oh, it was bad. Oh, it was really bad. But anyway, it's July 2021 right now. And Things have never been better. Never been better. We're obviously up over 2020, but we're well up over where we were in 2019, too. That's great. Yeah. It's pretty remarkable. I'm incredibly impressed with how my team has come together. We had this high-level attrition, but 
the next layer of folks. It gave younger folks a chance to step up and they've just far exceeded my expectations. It's been wonderful. So to see. are you still the production manager or have you filled that position? General manager. No, I understand, but he was oh, filling the oh, role yeah, yeah, of the yeah, production right. manager he for was a while. Interim, yeah. What's interesting about that is we no longer have a production manager. The role kind of got split between my operations manager. She's wonderful. She's a Six Sigma black belt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and bingo. She stepped up and took part of that role and the other part of it fell to my new shop floor supervisor. And what we found ourselves doing is we were kind of centralized in some of our leadership. So you became more collaborative? And started pushing more authority debt back down to the shop floor, back down to where the work was happening. Exactly. More of the quality work, the production work, the scheduling work. And everyone has stepped up. That's the most remarkable thing. The story that you're telling, it kind of reminds me of, and I've told you guys about this book that I read that was great. And I've implemented a lot of these practices, like you're talking about the humanocracy book, which it's intended to be the opposite of like this democratic process where you make these decisions at the top and then Mm -hmm. you push them down. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, you make these decisions at the floor and you push them upwards and you empower everybody to do that. the way we run making chips, like the agency, we don't push work onto people and say, you're going to do this next, you're going to do that next, you're going to do that. They know what work is next and Mm -hmm. they they pull it into their own schedule and say, hey, I'm going to take this one. Right. They know the priorities, but they can pull the work as appropriate. That's right. You never underestimate what people can accomplish when you empower them. Exactly. There's the quote. (laughs) We now have the quote for the episode. That's great. And you know, and I forgot what the heck I was going to say. That's okay. It's because it was such a profound I know quote. it was. I was just, I was about to cry right yeah, then. I know. I held it in, we almost but did I it. didn't cry. <laughs> we need to know, Jason, right now, how close are you to crying? After that quote, there was like a tear forming, but... All right, good. I'm okay. good now. Good. <laughs> I can keep my wallet in my pocket. <laughs> good. <laughs> so what does the future look like, Nick? Yeah, so we're going to continue doing what we're doing. We've done a wonderful job. We're obviously all seeing the benefits of this roaring economy. We've really focused on strengthening our distributor relationship. Relationships. You know, that was the only channel for us that grew last year. And we're super thankful that they put their trust in us and that we're able to deliver quality parts to their end customers. And we're going to continue building those relationships. And finally, we're focused on improving our lead times and we're really leaning into customer service. And that's paid huge dividends as well. In an era, you know, you guys talked about this earlier, but mm-hmm. in an era where international supply chains are getting stretched, it's more and more important to be able to make parts in America and keep supply lines short and keep lead times short. And we've actually been successful in reshoring a number of projects that we used to... You'd lost? Yeah, that we had either lost yeah. or used to farm out to offshore offshore partners. That's great to hear. We're bringing stuff back. And you know, the only way you can justify what we have to charge for parts that we make in America is with exemplary customer service, exemplary right responsiveness, yep. and short lead times. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those are three tough things to do. But you just got to do them and get them done, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, I'm really proud of what our teams have been able to accomplish. We went from being 70% on-time delivery to over 98%. Oh my God, in, that's awesome. Great. There you go. Yeah. Wow. Bam. With shorter lead times. That's awesome, Nick. That's the key. With shorter with, lead times. Because, yeah. you know, we had my brother on. He's always talking about like, on-time delivery sucks as a metric if you don't have like a counter metric. Mm-hmm. You got to drop your lead time and then still be on time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's hard when you can't get a freaking motor. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we think the sky's the limit for this team. We don't know whether this is with this booming economy is going to continue or not. But what was important to me was my team was able to respond to the booming demand and they held up and people are seem to be in a really good place. The culture seems to be a lot better. People enjoy coming to work and you know, we'll take it from there, I think. We'll see what the future brings, but I know we're ready for it. Great. So, you've been through a lot of trials and tribulations in your young career, I guess I would say. How have those experiences helped to prepare you for like when the next shoe drops? Because you know there's going to be another thing. Yep. 
Great question. Oh man, I think about this every day. What did we learn this last year? What did I learn over the last three years? I think the most important thing is that problems can look very daunting and especially in the moment, especially multifaceted problems. But I think the most important thing is to really just take a breath and formulate a plan, understand what your desired end state is, and then just start chipping away at it. Again, the value of being in a family business is our timelines are long and we don't have to solve everything overnight. And so if you make progress every day, every month, every year towards that vision, eventually you'll find success and take comfort in that. It's kind of like if you look at the whole arc of your career and then you think about this problem that you're going through right now, how troubling is that going to be if I look back at it five years from now? It's kind of like the same thing in your life. It's like, hopefully my life is going to be a hundred years and I'm going through a tough time right now. How big of a deal is this really? And can I get through that? And from my standpoint, can I trust God through this situation? And how big of a deal is that going to be? Because I've dealt with some tough things before that felt like, okay, this is is what's going to break me. You know what I mean? And you feel like you're going to have a heart attack. Yeah. And of course it's not, but you just got to chip a little bit every way. Create a plan and go forward from there. Chip away. Chip away. Chip away. Because you're not chipping away at your problems. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, Nick, it's been great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I think we found a new friend in making chips. It's refreshing to get to know you. And I know where to get my joints now. Yes. That's right. (laughs) Give us a call. It's legal in Illinois now, too. Do you Um, do knees? Because I might need a knee in the future. (laughs) No? You know, not yet. (laughs) You said universal joints. Universal. Whatever you need. (laughs) Any form of joint. But anyway, thank you again. And we look forward to having you back on the show again. I'd love to circle back in about a year or so and see how things are going at Universal. Bell. Thanks, yeah. guys. Nick, I'm going to take it away. If you can't empower your employees, you won't be making chips. Listen, Metalworking Nation, if this pandemic has taught me one thing, it's that we need to accelerate our digital transformation. You can't get into shops the same way anymore. Business isn't done the same way as it once was, and it's only going to continue to trend in that direction. Let me tell you about a company that is doing just that. It's Zometry. So what is Zometry? Zometry is custom manufacturing on demand. They have over 5,000 partners, and their network has the capacity you need for prototyping and production. They're AS9100 and ISO 9001 certified, registered with ITAR, You can get an instant quote today for any of the services that you might need, whether it be CNC machining, 3D printing, injection molding, sheet metal, finishing services. You can even buy materials. Zometry is trusted by the engineers and purchasing leaders at the world's most successful companies like BMW, GE, NASA, Dell, and Bosch. Listen, if you want to turbocharge the way you make custom parts, check out Zometry. It's really easy. X-O-M-E-T-R-Y dot com and you can get a quote today. You know, Nick, it seems like over the short career you've had, what, three years? Three years at Belden. Three years at Belden, you have really chipped away at some problems and we always like to end the show with something crafty and I think if you're not chipping away at your problems, you're not going to make chips. And if you're not making chips, you're not making money. Bam. 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 Metalworking Nation, listen up. Manufacturing is challenging. You need to think differently. The day-to-day whirlwind of urgencies, the pressure to grow, customer demands, workforce development, new machine tools and robots, the list goes on and on. It is possible to stay ahead of the game of manufacturing, but you can't do it alone. We're here to give you access to exclusive content from other leaders, as well as videos, blogs, show notes, and more resources designed to equip and inspire you on making chips. 